Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. My guest today is Anne-Marie Bennett. Anne-Marie has had a varied career. She's been an elementary school teacher, has worked in a theater, and is a soul collage trainer and facilitator. She's written several nonfiction books about her journeys with cancer and the soul collage process. But this year, she's published her first novel. She joins me to talk about her creative history as well as soul collage, the shift to writing fiction, her fascination with and research into how celebrity affects those who inhabit it, and of course, her new novel, Dragonflies at Night. Here's my conversation with Anne-Marie. Well, I'm really, really psyched that you could be here today. That's very cool. And it's nice to see you again. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, no problem. So how did your creative journey start? Oh, boy. I guess um, from the time I was very little, I was always doing creative things, putting on plays with the neighborhood kids, musicals, I should say. And I was always the director. I was in it too, but um, anyway, that was fun. And um, I was always writing and poems and making up stories. And, uh, um, you know, it just, it just um, kept on going. I, my mom had me in brownies and Girl Scouts all the way through um, high school. And that was really encouraging for my creativity too because there were badges to earn and there were all kinds of fields of interest to follow um and when I became a teacher I mean yeah well in college there wasn't quite so much creativity going on it was a lot of left brain (laughs) it was a lot of left brain stuff except for the one professor who in my senior year it was educational psychology and his big assignment was to write a paper and we were all like raising our hands, like, well, what's it supposed to be about? And how many pages is it supposed to be? And he was he just stood there and said, Write a paper. Wow. And that was that was like an open open field for creativity. Anyway, so wow. I never forgot, I never forgot that. What did you do? Um, I wrote um, a really long paper about gifted education, children in okay. gifted ed- children with high IQs and how we can meet their needs and in the public schools and so forth. So it was really fascinating research. One of my nieces um, fell into that category and uh, her parents, my brother and his wife were, you know, fussing with the school system to get her needs met. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so yeah. And then I became an elementary school teacher. So there was oodles of room for creativity there, even with the lesson plans and the objectives you had to meet. You know, there were colorful bullets and boards to make and um, <laughs> lesson plans and, you know, meet the needs of this kid that way and that way and this one. And they all had different needs and finding creative ways to come up with that. And I actually put on musicals with those kids, too. That was fun. Um, and then I became an educational consultant for a learning software company up here in the Northeast. And so there was lots of creativity there. We got to... Um, go into lots of different classrooms and help them with the educational software that we were teaching. And um, so teaching has been a big part of my archetypal background Mm -hmm. as well as creativity kind of 
meld those two together. Um, and we, um, one of the things the ed consultants had to do, or I would say got to do in that, <laughs> in that job that I had for several years is give workshops for the teachers on it, part of the workshops were for, um, to help them learn new things about the software we had, but we also were, were encouraged to do like effective kinds of um, sessions with them. So I was, I put together sessions on humor in the classroom and um, oh, cool. creativity and all kinds of self-esteem and um, the humor one was really the most fun. Um, <laughs> and okay. then, um, then I, then I met my current, my husband, current, He'll be the only one, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> and he had two kids from his first marriage that he was raising. So, um, and then I married him and there was all kinds of creativity going on with the kids were very young at that time. So that was kind of, yeah, it's sort of played a, a big role through my whole, my whole life when I've had cancer twice, two cancer journeys over since 2001. So that's been 19 years. So they've been spread apart, those two mm -hmm. journeys. And um, each time... I, I kind of, up until those times, I had kind of let the writing, the creative writing part of my creative journey go, the fiction part, throughout all of those other journeys. And even now with what I do now with Soul Collage, there's a lot of um, left brain essay writing and writing about my life. And I wrote two books about my cancer journeys. Um, one kind of a memoir, one kind of a workbook, but left brain. But mm -hmm. After each of my those cancer journeys, I really felt like there was something missing, and what it was was my I call it sitting at the computer and making stuff up uh -huh. <laughs> where I would just like <laughs> you know start writing a sentence and see where it took me just for the fun of it and so um I started doing that a little bit after the first cancer journey ended in two thousand and two, but then life got in the way. I was working at a theater helping Jeff with his kids. Um, and, uh, and then um, after the second journey, I guess I kind of really woke up in 2012 when all that was over. And then I really kind of started a, a fiction writing practice where I was just, um, I committed to like sitting at my laptop three times a week for half an hour mm -hmm. and just doing that. Sometimes it would go into more, but that little bit, that little chunk was doable. Because right. I was working full time at the theater, and I I had all kinds of other stuff going on, so so that kind of that fed me in a way that nothing else in this world does is feed me. And then in 2014, no, 2006, 2014, um, one of those little, you know, sitting down making up stuff, the characters kind of kept going, mm -hmm. and that kind of morphed into what is now the book that I'm publishing on September 22nd, Dragonflies at Night. But um, there's amazing how much you can get done in these little amounts yeah. of time, although I've probably spent more time over the last year working on how to get it out there in the world than I spent actually writing it. <laughs> I guess there's all kinds <laughs> of steps that go in, like editing, you have to edit, you have to find somebody to do the cover, you have to find somebody to design the book. And yeah, so. Right. So it's funny, when, when I heard the, that you were doing a novel, I was kind of surprised because there have been you know, so many nonfiction things that I was thinking of with your name attached. And I suppose this is where I should tell people that I met you, I think in 2011 is when you trained me as a soul collage facilitator, which seems like it should not be as long ago as it is. <laughs> and, 
Yeah, I, I don't remember the, the year, but it's been a while. I, I think that's when it was. And so, you know, I've known you through that for a while. And on top of writing all of these other books, you've, you've written a couple about Soul Collage, which are the essays that you are talking about. You also are a Soul Collage facilitator and trainer, and you run Kaleidosoul. Right. So it's not like all you were doing was working full-time at a theater. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you know? Since 2005, I started, well, in 2005, I kind of, in, in this, it was very synchronistic and I was really upset and had a lot of angry feelings about it, but my boss demoted me by email in early in that Eesh. year. And, uh, I had just become a, I, I was, I was wanting to become a facilitator. I just figured out soul collage. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then it was just really uncomfortable. And then I just had these feelings like it was time to leave. And I'd been there 10 years and it was like a family. It was like a second family to me mm-hmm. when, when the step family stuff wasn't going so great. It was like a second family. And it was like, no, I'm not going to leave. Why would I leave? And then, but I just had to leave. And then I became a facilitator and then Kaleidosol kind of took off. So it was like a blessing in disguise. It was one of those things that you didn't want to happen. And then I right. probably would have waited another year or two before I actually left. But her doing that, it really set the ball in motion for me to have more this more creativity endeavor at Kaleidosol. Yeah. I, I think we should tell people what Soul Collage is, and I'm just going to go ahead and bet that you'll do a better job of that than I will. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was created by a woman who, um, a brilliant woman, Sina Frost, and she's got a book called Soul Collage Evolving that's on Amazon. And it's a intuitive self-discovery process where you make a deck of cards, sort of like making your own tarot deck, only you're making them intuitively with just magazine images and scissors and glue. And it's anybody can do it. Little kids do it. Our age kids do it. Old <laughs> people do it. Um, people, uh, facilitators use it with hospice, people in hospice and families of people in hospice and all different kinds of um, people are using soul collage all around the world. I think when I started, there were a couple hundred facilitators in 2005, and now there's like 4,000 and something. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a very powerful process. You get in touch with your own inner parts. You get in touch with um, animal guides. If those call to you, you learn about archetypal energy that is guiding you. And you make cards for people and animals in your people and pets in your community who have been wise guides for you. And then the cool thing is that you could do journaling with them. You can do activities in small groups with the cards. And you, um, the most powerful thing for me is doing a reading, like where you would go to a tarot deck and ask the question about your life. You would do this with your own cards, and then you would draw cards randomly to help you answer. It's very powerful because you found the images or the images found you and you made the cards and um, to get answers from what you've already called is very, very powerful as you know, because you've done it. (laughs) Yeah, it, it definitely, there's a whole process of asking questions that goes with it that I think (laughs) we normally wouldn't run through you know, what do you have to tell me? What do you want me to know? Or things like that. I think we don't normally think about just about anything in in life that way. And running through that process, even if that's all you ever do is ask those four questions, 
you can learn a whole heck of a lot and it all comes out of you, which I have to say the first time I did it, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that everybody says this, the first time I did it, I was just like, where the heck did that come from? Yeah. And that's you know. the magic. It comes from us, but it seems like it's coming from the pictures on the cards, but we yeah. made them and we created them. So really it's coming from us. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know the, the really interesting thing about it is that you find out how wise you really are and you've probably always have been, and you just had no way to access that, especially in our wonderful world of constant distraction where no one really stops and thinks about anything for very long anymore. Right. It's, it's just amazing what, what can come out. And I know for me, because I'm also a writer, I think there's something that happens when I put pen to paper. I've been really impressed with a couple of people who, you know, with different work projects, I'm sitting there trying to make something up off the top of my head to, you know, fix a sentence or a paragraph or something. And one of my friends at work just looked at me, reached over and handed me a pen and a piece of paper. And I thought, wow, that is incredibly, incredibly perceptive. But as soon as I had the pen in my hand and the piece of paper, it went so much more smoothly. And I think that that's part of what brings it out with soul collages that I'm usually doing it by myself. A lot of people will do that process out loud with someone else, but I'm almost always doing it with pen and paper. And I think that that somehow triggers more as part of it too. So yeah, I, I got my cards out not long ago for the first time in a while and sat down and, and just went through with one card and I was like, dang, where did this come from? <laughs> you, for, you had forgotten about it, the card? You'd forgotten? I, I hadn't forgotten about them, but well, I sort of had. Um, and they were kind of buried where it was hard to get to them. And so, you know, it had sort of fallen off the radar. And when I did that one card, I just went, yeah, why did I do that? Why did I, let, <laughs> why did I put them there? <laughs> right, right. So, I, these need to stay out somewhere where they're more accessible. And I probably need to make some new ones because it's yeah. been a while. Yeah. There's a lot of classes going on online right now because you can't go to one in person. Right. <laughs> unfortunately. But I love what you said about the pen and the paper that you're friend gave you that was very smart because I find I can uh yeah a different part of my brain is accessed when I'm writing with my hand than mm -hmm. when I'm at the, at the computer I, I don't write the fiction I don't write the fiction by with pen and paper because my brain goes too fast for that me too <laughs> but I like to journal that way because it really slows me down and it slows mm -hmm. my um, thinking down and it slows my heart rate down <laughs> that's interesting because I've always thought of journaling with pen and paper as kind of frustrating because my hand can't keep up with my brain. Oh, right, right. But I'm thinking now I should think of it as this is my chance to slow that down. Yeah, maybe. That would be it, really I mean, helpful, I think. Everybody's <laughs> different, though. I mean, everybody, not everybody likes to journal with pen and paper, so. Right. Well, okay. I also sometimes feel constrained if the journal is too small. Yeah. So, you know, or yeah. if the pen isn't just right. There right. are so many reasons to get in your own way. <laughs> I know. That's so true. And I sometimes I will journal with my laptop if I have something really, especially if I'm aggravated or upset about mm -hmm. something, because <laughs> then I really need to get it all down without, um, yeah, I need to keep up with my, my brain. Right. So when you started writing fiction again, since it had been a while, it sounds like you just would 
do exactly what you were saying earlier, just write a sentence and see where it goes for half an hour. And most of the time it was just some random little half hour thing, but it must've felt really different from all the other kinds of writing that you've done over the last decade or so. Yeah, it, it did feel different, but that's why I think I really, I really, really liked it. Um, <laughs> I think it, it feeds me, I guess it feeds my imagination, which has always been a huge part of my life and growing up and just closing my eyes and imagine myself somewhere else or in another world. And it kind of feeds that part of me and I hadn't mm-hmm. been feeding that part of me. So it, it was strange, but it felt familiar and comfortable mm-hmm. and like I wanted more of it. <laughs> and it's not to say I did half an hour every day or every, or three day, times a week, every week, you know, from then mm-hmm. until now, that's definitely not happened. But, uh, <laughs> but once I got going on this story, it seemed to, you know, feed on itself. Like mm-hmm. I had to keep going back to it because I would be doing something or taking a walk and I would hear in my imagination or know what would be next. Mm-hmm. Or somebody, a little, I remember one little girl in a in stopping job, I'll never forget her. And I was like, she was little and she was feisty and she had long straight blonde hair and she was skinny and she was five or six years old and I was like I have to put her in this book <laughs> and there she is her name's Carly in the book anyway ah. anyway just little things like that like once I committed to it kind of it kind of just kept unfolding mm-hmm. it, and, and then and then I just kind of kept and I kind of did miss for those last several years that I've been working at it in bits and pieces I did kind of miss I have kind of missed making up other stuff Mm-hmm. But I've kind of stayed true to this without getting sidetracked on something else. But I've got another one in the back of my mind now. <laughs> it's just that um, it's the main characters in this book are still like living in that uh, house in my head. Yeah. And the other characters are like ready to move in, but it's not quite time. You're not <laughs> ready packed. to evict the first They're ones yet. and ready. Yeah. But the other, I still have to devote my energy this month and probably part of next month too the promotion that's mm-hmm. coming up. Yeah. So that's okay. Uh, um, there, the other characters are there. They're, they're inside me. They're living there. They just haven't moved in. <laughs> so I haven't I've, started the story, but I like that metaphor of the house and who's living in it right now and who's yeah, waiting yeah. to move in. And that's like what it feels like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a lot of people ask me when I finally published my book, you know, are you going to do a sequel? And I thought, I kind of think they're done. I mean, it feels like it's a whole story to me, you know? And then, I mean, I've always said if I did write one, it would probably be a prequel with the story that went before that you kind of learn about in bits and pieces throughout the book, but to see, you know, how that actually happened. And yet I haven't quite got myself there yet. I committed... I committed the the biggest sin you can commit as a writer a couple of years ago. I started rereading the book because enough people had asked me that question. And I thought, well, I'll see what happens if I go back into this world, you know? And I had an idea. I didn't finish rereading the book, but I had an idea. And I said to myself, the fatal, fatal words, oh, I don't need to write it down. I'll remember it. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. These are words you should never say, children. <laughs> because but then, you, you know, won't. I said that to myself too. And some somewhere I heard someone say, or or I read it somewhere that if you're meant to remember it, you will. 
so maybe it wasn't meant to be remembered. I, I don't know. That's just a thought. Or maybe you're really upset that you forgot. <laughs> I get a little frustrated sometimes, but I don't lose sleep over it. But, but I do think, you know, there are the ideas that, like, like that book when it started, where I was like, what is this? And, you know, what's going on? And I wanted to figure it out. And that kind of idea doesn't leave you alone, which is sort of what you were describing. But this one was not fully formed enough to have lodged itself in my brain and not let go. So, oops. Maybe it'll come back. Maybe you'll dream about it. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, people have asked me about, I mean, I have, um, it doesn't, uh, Dragonflies at Night doesn't come out until September 22nd, but I have a really nice large group of super fans who are reading it ahead of time so that when it does come out, they can do reviews for me. Um, and um, a lot of them are asking for a sequel. And I'm, you know, I'm in the same position you are. I feel like it's done. Yeah. I, it had, an, it had a, a satisfying ending, I, I, they're all telling me. But I, I don't know, they want more. I do, there, there are, uh, there is another couple in the story that, um, that could, I could write their love story, but I, you know, I, and I do, I do, I did have a couple of chapters about them that I had to take out because it was long enough. Mm-hmm. Nobody it really wasn't that important that I can give people those chapters. I can, those deleted chapters and there you see authors giving yeah. deleted chapters. I could do that for the people who want a sequel. They could see what happens with Brando and Andy. I, I don't know. Kinda. <laughs> but I feel done. I feel done. Like I, and these other characters are in my head now. They're mm-hmm. moving in. They're moving in, and uh, I could probably bring the lead character. The lead character is a um, a world-renowned singer and songwriter, and he could come to this town where the new story takes place and do a concert. So I might, I might have that happen. Just oh, that's an in. interesting thought. So that, that could be fun. Yeah. Once a set of characters starts talking to you, though, it's really, really hard to ignore them and right. go back to right. something before. Right. Right. So you must be chomping at the bit to get to the point where you can actually just sit down and play. Yes, I kind of am. And I, a couple of weeks ago, I took myself to the retreat center that I use for my soul mm-hmm. collage retreats. And um, they just had opened up in July for individual retreaters. Not, we can't do group mm-hmm. retreats there until hopefully next year mid next year hopefully <laughs> um but um i took myself there for three nights and i did i i was thinking I, yeah i couldn't start writing it because i don't have everything fully formed but i did have lots of paper out and i was jotting notes and i went through all my all my old notes for like possible characters someday and ideas and things i'd written and pulling them all together so that was really satisfying and exciting because I could see kind of where it's going. That sounds really cool. That sounds like, boy, I'm just sitting here thinking three days to myself doing anything right now sounds like paradise. And somewhere, it was somewhere different. Like when I look out the window, I see something different. Even though I didn't really, I went from my room to the dining hall where I was the only guest actually. And they had the food made for me and everything. So it was kind of like really luxurious. (laughs) Um, it's but still I, I, not your house. Not my house. Not, <laughs> not my your husband. street. No cats to let in and out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but I have over the last few years, two or three times a year, gone up to Agunquit, Maine, 
which is about an hour and 10 minute drive from here. Mm-hmm. So it's just far enough away that I could get back if somebody got sick, but it's, it's away and is a nice little hotel right by the water. I can sit with my laptop and the water is right there. And, um, those, those little writing retreats helped me over the last year and a half to kind of put the finishing touches on this, mm-hmm. right? The end matter and the front matter. And the, the last few chapters were written up there on one of those retreats. And uh, yeah, so getting away so, for me, solitude is really important. Right. So how long was it from start to finish for this book? I started that little making stuff up in 2014. Yeah, so that's six years, but I, it was done a year. I would say it was actually done, written, finished a year or more ago. And I don't remember exactly, but then I had to have editors go through it, mm-hmm. and I had to have my beta readers go through it, and yes, yeah, so there's all kinds of steps after it's finished, you know. Yeah, and people, you know, people were really helpful. Like I had, I had a. Um, the main character's mother is deceased, but she speaks throughout the story. And I had named her Audrey Rose because I just love that name. But one of my beta readers, or two of my beta readers, <laughs> emailed me and said, you know, that's the name of a famous horror movie. You may want to not use that. <laughs> so, little, you know, things like that are really, really helpful. So yeah. I had no idea. I don't like horror movies, so I never would have known that. So right. now her name is Deirdre Rose. <laughs> um, yeah, so... There's, there's just a lot that goes into finishing and actually yeah. manifesting it and making it a book instead of just letting it sit in a drawer. And actually in 2016 or 17, maybe, I took a course with Jennifer Loudon. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with her. I can't praise her enough. Um, I've been reading her books and learning from her for 30 years or more. And she had a class called Get Your Scary Shit Done. (laughs) And at that time, the book was maybe half, two-thirds done and sitting in a drawer because I didn't know, I really didn't know what to do next or or whatever. I don't know. I just got stalled. I don't really believe in in writer's block, but I just felt like I couldn't do any more yet. And maybe I didn't want to. You know, Mm -hmm. it was kind of at that point. And... And people in the class were, weren't all writing books. Some people were losing weight. Some people were training for a marathon, just whatever scary thing you wanted to do. And she had all these steps and she had so much wisdom about tiny, tiny steps, you know, that Kaizen philosophy, Mm -hmm. making lists and um, celebrating every time you did one of those little things on the list. And just for me, just sitting down and deciding, this is the scary thing I want to finish that was huge because, you know, you had to decide Mm -hmm. and then making a list of what I could do next. And the first thing on the list is read what I've already written, you know? So then when I do that, I can cross it off. And then I'm really big about (laughs) lists and crossing things off. And there was so many, so much other like wisdom and support. We had a, a, you know, an online support group. And I remember one time I was on that support group wondering why, why on earth am I writing fiction when there's so many other things to do that, you know, that would make me more money and so on. And somebody, not her, but somebody responded, maybe you're writing fiction because it gives you joy and pleasure and that could be enough. And that just like really like cemented 
yes, this is really what I want to do. So why am I futzing around here? So, yeah. And I, I think that gets lost. You know, I was just reading a, an sort of interviewized conversation with Martha Beck yesterday that said something similar, said, you know, the culture tells you that everything you do has to earn money or offer value to someone else. And that's fine because those things are both important in their own ways. But sometimes you just need to do the things that you want to do and not worry about whether or not it makes any money or does anything for somebody else because you're important too. And I think, I think we lose that part. And I think a lot of people, you know, we hear about focus groups all the time and certainly you can tell like when a movie has been focus grouped to death (laughs) because all the life gets stripped out of it because they're so busy trying to please everybody else. And I really think, you know, if you haven't pleased yourself as your first audience for something that you've written, you're never going to please anybody else. You're never going to please everybody else. Right. But how can you expect anyone else to enjoy something that you didn't enjoy doing? Right. I agree. That's, that's totally, that's totally how I'm going forward with the rest of my fiction. Mm -hmm. Because I, it started out as a little romance. I was just like, oh, this will be fun. I'll just write a romance because I never wrote that before. Mm -hmm. And then, but it turned into something else because the, main character's dead mother is telling part of the story Mm -hmm. and then then there's meaning it became meaningful and a little bit of spirituality in there with the dragonflies and the symbolism of um they only fly it they rarely fly at night but they only fly at night when they're heading towards light and the mother yeah i want to say that i don't want to give too much away but the, (laughs) um, the light the 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 dragonflies are meaningful because savannah the daughter she's in her 30s not young but mm-hmm. whenever she sees a dragonfly she feels closer to her mother mm-hmm. her mother was going to be um i forget the word entomologist the one that studies uh insects. En- entomologist i think <laughs> right yeah entomologist and dragonflies were always her favorite so anyway there's metaphor woven through about and also about how the line, the, the veil, you know, between this world and that one is so thin and um, the ones we love are not really gone. Mm-hmm. Still, they are wherever we are. I forget the exact quote from St. John of Christosom, but anyway, that's sort of, I didn't plan on that. It just kind of kept coming. And um, so it's not a romance anymore. And I, I remember early, about, about a year ago, I sent it out to 15 people who wanted to be my beta readers and one of them wrote back saying well it didn't follow the standard romance formula so maybe there should be more tension here maybe there should be this that I mean she wasn't angry about it but right that woke me up to the fact that it's not really a romance because <laughs> when you google romance or when you go on Amazon and put romance in the bar you get these cover book covers of you know, men with their shirts off mm-hmm. and women with their hair flung back. And it's not, right. that's not that kind of book, although there is a romance woven through it. So <laughs> I have to write something different that doesn't fall into an ordinary category. And my, it's one reason why I hired some marketing people to help me, you know, mm-hmm. get the right keywords in there and to put the language correctly so that it attracts the right kind of people. I feel like I've been doing that all along because I have a really good group of people backing me right now who are reading it right now who are 
telling me good things about about it. So. Yeah, it definitely does not follow the traditional romance formula. But yeah, that would have been my response to like, so? <laughs> right, right. That, but I, I, I kind of, that was my first response when I read it. I was like, yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't, I did that on purpose, kind of. I didn't want it to be the standard because mm-hmm. those are so predictable and right. kind of boring. I don't like, when I start reading a book and that's what it turns out it's going to be, I just don't read it anymore because I know how it's Because you already know, know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because it was really relatively recently because that's not something that I've ever really delved into much as a reader or a writer that I realized just how formulaic they are. And, and that's because apparently they have to be. The, the, the following the formula is a big part of what sells the book. Right. So, but I, I mean, I, I have the feeling you and I are on the same page here. If I tried to do something that was that formulaic over and over again, I would get so bored that I just wouldn't be able to do it anymore. Right. Or I'd right. drive myself crazy, whichever one came first. Right. Yeah. So we've kind of shifted this over to women's fiction mm-hmm. because women's fiction doesn't follow an ordinary formula usually pretty much. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and you know, I did wonder as I was reading it with the dragonflies, I was really, really curious to know if dragonflies were one of your soul collage animal companions. Yes. It's my um, crown chakra animal companion. Uh-huh. My, my connection to divinity. And I, year, years and years ago, when I first met my husband and things started getting a little tense in the step family situation, I started seeing a spiritual director. Her name was Lynn. I'll never forget. And um, she was an older woman, but very wise. And she would lead me on, we would talk, of course. And then she would lead me in these guided meditations, kind of. And I remember one time, I don't know what the guided meditation was about, but I think she invited me to see a gift or something. And it was a dragonfly was landed on me. And I've always, ever since then, felt that connection to spirit whenever I see a dragonfly. One time a dragonfly did land on my hand a few years ago, but usually they just wow. fly, fly around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the story, Savannah, when Savannah, her mother dies when she's 15, and at the fu- after the funeral, she's sitting outside by herself crying, and a dragonfly lands on her arm for a long time. And that's, that's what makes her connect to the dragonfly. She, yeah. And there's, there's all kinds of, I, I did a lot of research on dragonflies because mm-hmm. I really didn't know very much, but their eyes see almost 360 degrees around. And in many cultures, they symbolize um, the fact that there's more to life than what we can see. And they have very, very short lifespans. Once they come, they're born in the water. And once they come out of the water, they live like seven to 14 days, I think so. Oh, wow. I don't think I knew that though. I thought Unless I'm confusing them with something else, aren't they also the ones that can fly backwards and forwards? I know hummingbirds can go backwards. I can't. Okay. I think they can. Yes, I think. I, I think that's in the book too. Oh, yeah. could be. They can fly <laughs> in all directions. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen one go backwards. But I don't think I have either. But but I've heard that. So I've and always kind of wondered why. Why would you go backwards? I know. <laughs> if you can fly. Yes. Unless they're trying to get away from a bird or Maybe. something that's about to eat them. Maybe. That would be a good reason. <laughs> Escape. <laughs> but no, it is, it is definitely, you know, not your typical love story. And I don't, I, I don't read a whole lot of women's fiction either, so I don't know 
you know, if there are trends rather than formulas with that, but they, you know, the, the conversations are, well, they're not conversations, but the bits where her mother is speaking and then her aunt and, and things like that are, are interesting little interludes that kind of fill in the backstory a little bit and, and also foreshadow where things are going too. So how did you decide to include those? Well, it just became a way to, um, for the mother to have a way to speak. And mm-hmm. since there is music throughout, because Ben is a, a big musician, I was using the preludes and the interludes kind of as a nod to the music. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's where, that's where the preludes and the interludes came from, the terminology. Mm-hmm. Because the aunt is... Um, the aunt is incapacitated with a stroke and the mother's dead. So they can't like walk into a scene. Right. <laughs> so they kind of felt like I had to keep them separate. I, I thought, especially the, there's one with, with the aunt who, you know, she's, she's aware that Savannah is visiting and what she could see and understand and what she couldn't and her whole perception of that. You know, we don't really know what's going on in anybody's head like that but i thought that that was was an interesting view you know it seemed it seemed reasonably realistic to me for not having experience with that myself but but just to kind of notice like the the music makes an impression and the i think there's some light that that she sees and things like that and it's like yeah that makes sense to me that that you would kind of get the big stuff that hits you on the sensory level and i know that i think it's oliver sacks wrote about how you know, people with dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that would still remember the songs that they listened to when they were teenagers or young adults and things like that. And that they could actually like remember all the words and totally come back while they were listening to music. Right. And then as soon as the song ends, they're right back where they were, which just blows my mind and what that right. could lead to, you know, why that happens is fascinating. Right. And I, I had, um, because the aunt, Auntie Zan was a famous musician in her day, I had, I, I'm pretty sure I have referred to her remembering that Savannah only ever played music without words, orchestra, she couldn't think of the word orchestra, mm. orchestra, but Savannah played for her one of Ben's songs, and she, in her, she couldn't speak, of course, because she's had a stroke, but she's wondering why Savannah's playing music with words until she mm-hmm. watches her niece's face and sees it light up at the sound of his voice and then she realizes what she's telling her it was kind of hard to write those scenes those scenes with the aunt were the hardest for me because um like you said i've never had a stroke but my mom had a stroke when she was 81 three days before she died and my brothers and i were there around her in the hospital room taking turns for three days so i was always i always wondered like we were playing music for her Mm -hmm. and talking to her and we I always wondered, like, if she could really hear and what she'd be thinking about what she was hearing, you know? Right. Like, but so those scenes were kind of hard to write because I had, that was the only frame of reference I had was mm-hmm. from Savannah's side of the bed, not, but I thought, you know, I've worked those over several times, more than <laughs> that, probably. I feel like, I feel like I did Auntie Zan justice there. I think so. I think so. She, she's a, a compelling and relatable character, even though she's not in it all that much as an active presence. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing that I was wondering about as I was reading it was that, you know, because Ben is a famous musician, 
And he's originally at the beginning of the book, he's really trying to keep a low profile at this retreat center because he doesn't want to be mobbed with people and whatever. And all of the ways that that factors into the book. Did you, did you originally start out saying this is the the cross I want to give him to bear or did did it just kind of flow out of itself or did you you know do a bunch of reading was there an incident that inspired you to think about all of that well um I'm a big Josh Groban fan and he's been single for so many years and I, <laughs> I really had a big big crush on him back in 2014 and I I, I really I felt sad that he had no one special in his life. And I, I thought in my mind, wouldn't it be nice to give him a girlfriend? So what girlfriend would I make up for him? And that's, and then I happened to be at Kripalu. I, I go to Kripalu, the yoga center, quite, I was going once a year, probably. Uh, not now. Yeah. And, um, and so I happened to be there while this was going on in my mind. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if she was laying here on a yoga mat and then he came in and and so I cut, that's mm-hmm. where the whole story started. It didn't start with anything about dragonflies or dead mothers or, or anything. It was just, <laughs> it was just the two of them. And wasn't that funny and a little meat cute. And, um, and so, but I've always, always been fascinated by a celebrity, even when I was young and, you know, Bobby Sherman was my first big crush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember my parents taking me to some place somewhere outdoors to see him perform. And then, in my younger year, maybe I was in my 20s, I went to the airport to pick somebody up. This is in Boston. And um, this was in the days when you could actually go into the terminals. Mm-hmm. And I was waiting. <clears throat> I was waiting and people were coming off the plane. And Michael J. Fox was coming off the plane and he had like two or three bodyguards around him. Around him. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is Michael J. Fox. But mm-hmm. I, But there were a lot of people waiting for their people to come off the plane. And they were screaming and hollering and yelling and trying to touch him and I was like what is happening this was strange it was just very strange to me and I think I think I've always been fascinated with that psychology behind Mm -hmm. why people put people like that on pedestals and why because all I saw was a good-looking guy very short you know (laughs) ordinary walking down the hall and I knew it was Mm -hmm. Michael J. Fox and those were the years of family ties which I loved right yeah, so I've always been bad, and I did, once I realized I was going to keep moving forward with this, I did some research, got some books from the library, read online about celebrity psychology and why, you know, why people go crazy over them and why, and how, how celebrities deal with that kind of thing, because yeah. some of them deal with it better than others, <laughs> as you probably know, and I tried to make them someone who had a kind of pragmatic mm-hmm. approach to dealing with the paparazzi, so to speak. What did you learn about what goes into that psychology? <laughs> I, I can't not ask. <laughs> well, just that people, because they're in the public eye, people put them on pedestals because they think they're better, greater, grander than they are, or or they're um, up on a pedestal where they want to be someday, or they think they're just super special because they've done something special enough to get them in the public eye, like a movie star or TV star, when really they're just people like you mm-hmm. and me. And I've always, always held to that, especially after, after that Michael J. Fox incident. And I, you know, yeah. I, I, um, I love Kenny Loggins too. And one year after I left the theater, 
he came to do a concert at the theater where I was working. And a friend of mine who was still working there got me a ticket and got me the backstage pass to meet mm-hmm. him. And I, yeah, and I, and it, there were people there that were hanging on him too. And this was not too long ago. So he's in his sixties probably, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like fame is famous anymore. Young right. people don't know who he is, I'm sure. So anyway, things like that, just, you know, and I was just happy to just shake his hand and say, it's nice to meet you, you know, but <laughs> yeah. Then, and I just think, you know, he's been on the stage performing for 90 minutes, two hours, and now he's back here. People are asking things of him and mm-hmm. hugging him and that he doesn't know. And it just, um, I kind of, uh, well, I've always been the kind of person that can look at another person, kind of put myself in another person's shoes and what they're going through. So I guess maybe that was transferred to celebrity. I always look at, you know, how they might be feeling right now as opposed to what I might need for them right now. Stephen Fry wrote, I think it was the first essay he ever wrote on his blog and being Stephen Fry, it is really truly an essay. It's quite long. And, and I think he called it Let Fame. And it was all about how, how to be around someone famous and more to the point, how, how not to be. Right. And, and that, I read it back when he first published it. And then I reread it again five years ago because I was going to an event and I knew Sam Neill was going to be there and I didn't want to be the weirdo. And it just was so helpful because it really gives you that perspective. I think a lot of people think that, well, you're famous and you have lots of money and therefore I have the right to demand things of you or just be weird and tell you that I hated this episode that you were in or or whatever. And it's like, no, there's a person there who's just like you and, you know, you being weird to them isn't necessarily, it shouldn't be part of that package. Right. Having a whole pile of money doesn't necessarily, right. First of all, it's probably not as much as you think it is by the time somebody pays their agent and for security and whatever, (laughs) but it's also just, it doesn't cover the cost of dealing with the psychological weirdness of right. having to look out for other people. I mean, there are scenes in the book where, you know, Ben's got his cap on really low over his face and he's tucking his hair away and trying so hard not to be recognized. A friend of mine, at least six or seven years ago, was at Heathrow Airport in like a, a makeup shop when David Tennant walked in just like that with the baseball cap down over his head. I think she said he was wearing like a Millennium Falcon t-shirt or something like that. And she recognized him, but it was so obvious that he didn't want to be recognized that she just was like, yeah, I can help you find this thing because he looked a little bit lost and whatever. And and she said like the relief on his face when he realized that they weren't going to start freaking out was so palpable. And then he ended up being on her flight. So I don't know how the flight went, but at least, you know, in the airport, it was kind of like, okay, this is all right. We're not right. going to make a scene. We're not going to, you know, it's okay. We get right. it, you know? Right. And I think, I think that's kind of how to be a person. Right. I mean, they need privacy. And mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're doing acting like that, then you need to honor that and respect that. Right. Just like you would respect your friend if your friend said, don't talk to me for a day or something. Yeah. But I think people, I think people think they know the celebrity because they've listened to their albums so many times or they've seen them in this TV show mm-hmm. every week for the last five years or whatever. I think they think they know them. I think that's part of what I learned that, that the celebrity of being in the public eye 
makes us feel like we know them when we really don't. We just know yeah. the persona that their their manager and their agent and their stylist is trying to promote to mm-hmm. people. And sometimes it's the same way as the person is. You know, like somebody like Jason Mraz and Josh Groban, I think they are who they project. Um, right. And I, when I was writing, making up the songs and imagining then singing, I was picturing kind of a a mel um, amalgamation of whatever the word is of Josh Brogan and and Jason Mraz, their mm-hmm. authenticity, you know. But I, that doesn't mean I know them enough to right. go up and start telling them what they're doing wrong with their life or whatever. <laughs> well, and I think you know that that's the thing because especially with social media you know, where people are commenting on Twitter and things like that. It is, it is a big question. Is that really what they're like? Is what you think you know really accurate? Or is it just this impression that you have? But either way, you have to remember that just because you feel like you know them or know something about them, they still don't have any idea who you are. That's right. That's right. That's the other half of that. Yep. <laughs> That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. And that, that was one of the questions in my head when I went on that trip five years ago, because Sam Neill is so goofy and mellow on Twitter. If you haven't discovered that yet, you probably should, because honestly, sometimes I think he's the only uplifting thing on Twitter, especially during the pandemic. But I kept saying to myself, so I guess we're going to find out if you are just what it says on the tin or not. And, and he is. So he's exactly. So you got to to meet him and shake his Mm -hmm. hand and have a chat and everything. Yeah. That's cool. But but yeah, I mean he's he's exactly as laid back and mellow and goofy as he seems on Twitter. So right. so I was like, oh hallelujah, because I've been <laughs> so disappointed. <laughs> right. I know, I know. You know. Some, of, some of those celebrities I think are putting on a face. And, and some of them, you know, some of them don't actually touch social media themselves. So somebody right. else is doing it. So right. you have no idea, you know, what that right. representation is versus right. reality. Right. Right. But I did really find that an, an interesting angle as I was reading because it was, you know, something that I'd thought about a little bit before. I haven't done the research, but it did remind me of all of those things. Right, right. Yeah, because the relief shows on his face when Savannah doesn't go gaga, yeah. even though she really knows him, and, mm-hmm. I mean, knows his music and is a fan. Right. She senses that that's not the right way to approach him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think anybody really who's paying attention, who can tamp down their excitement in that situation well enough, can can read that room, you right. know, and say, "Okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody you're here at the Heathrow makeup shop. I'm going right. to keep going and do right. my thing, and hope right. you find what you're looking for." Yeah, right, right. I mean, that celebrity becomes a big kind of uh, an issue between them because it can come between, or it can mm-hmm. come, it can, it can hinder a relationship that's why i think sometimes celebrities have a hard time staying married or mm-hmm. in relationship or finding someone genuine who wants to know them for them and not for yeah. what they can do for them or what they can give them yeah and that's the other thing that i think it's very easy for us to judge from afar is oh so and so is on their sixth marriage well when you're under a, a microscope like that all the time it's not the same as it would be for somebody right. else right so yeah, and then there there are celebrity. I mean, I did I did research on celebrity marriages that last and things like that. And you know, there are some like um, I can't remember the names of the wives, but um, and a lot of what I learned was that the celebrity marriages that last. You know, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, mm. but they keep their private life private. 
Like right. you don't see pictures all over the place of them and their kids doing this, doing that, doing that, all over social media or whatever. They keep their private lives private. And that's kind yeah. of what I was trying to do with Ben and Savannah to make their love story last. Makes sense to me. Well, it's a totally charming book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I worked in like everything. It seemed a friend of mine pointed this out. I didn't know I was consciously doing that, but she said, everything you love is in here. You got cats, you got theater, <laughs> you got musicals, you got um, singers, you got music, you got, you've got, you've incorporated your breast cancer journey mm-hmm. because one thing Savannah is, uh, her mother died from breast cancer and she's afraid she has the gene for it and mm-hmm. then so what would that mean if she got really involved with this guy and had kids with him and right so she's very hesitant about it so I, I worked all that in because I definitely have had that fear of it coming back I know I don't I'm pretty sure I don't have the gene because nobody in my family has ever had it but anyway a friend of mine pointed out you've got everything you love in there you know I was like yeah Kripalu, yoga <laughs> dragonflies <laughs> well and you do say in the note at the end that there's a lot of you in Savannah right Right. And, it, you know, I, I don't think it can really truly be any other way. I mean, even if you had made her to be as unlike you as humanly possible, if you're writing her, she's still going to have a lot of you in her. Right, right. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's possible to do it any other way. Right, right. And I, I really got to know them at the beginning once I realized it was more than just a little exercise I was doing mm-hmm. for the fun of it to make me happy. I did, you know, part of my writing times, I did interviews with them where I pretended in my imagination I was sitting with them at, you know, at Ben's house or at her aunt's bedside or whatever. And I would mm-hmm. just write out the dialogue between me and that and them one at a time. I never did them all together. And that a lot came out from that. And that's how I learned about her mother dying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so if you're, if anybody out there is writing and you've got some characters going, that's a good, I found it really insightful and really stimulated my imagination even more because I had a picture in my mind of what they looked like, but I didn't really know where they came from or how they got to be where they are, or their story. Or, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've just thought of something that never has crossed my mind before and probably wouldn't have if I weren't talking to you. But I thought, do you make soul collage cards for fictional characters? Um, Suppose you could. I haven't. I haven't <laughs> done it yet. I do have a dragonfly lady card. Mm-hmm. It's from somebody's artwork, so I can't really show it but online. But um, I did, when I started my blog and my author newsletter, I realized I wanted to show them what I thought they looked like. So I searched online for pictures of a 30-ish woman with curly blonde hair. There aren't too many out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pictures of models or whatever with curly right. blonde hair, short, short curly blonde hair. But I found one and I found one that could kind of look like Ben. But I haven't put them on a card yet, but I think once the major... Um, energy of this is over, I might just do that. And I had, I had found images for Auntie Zan and Deirdre also. Yeah, it's kind of funny how you can see them in your mind, but yeah. then when you try and find a picture of them. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story. Right. Yeah. But no, I'd never thought about that. I may, I may do that with, with mine, if I can find something to, to use for it. It'd be really interesting to see what they'd have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's a good way to get those creative juices going. 
and to hear their story. Yeah. You want to know their story. They didn't just plop down on my screen fully formed. <laughs> they, right. they come in a little flash. They, right. you know, you just got this little bit and it's like, and who are you? Right. And why right. are you here? And right. why have you stayed? Right. Not that I'm necessarily complaining, but you're still here. Right. So. <laughs> and I can't call you Josh Groban. <laughs> if I'm really going to write the story and put it out there, I have to change this character so that he's not Josh Groban. Yeah. Well, and you would end up with a different character anyway. Right. Because you only have a surface. That's right. You and you're going to put yourself right. in there. So yeah, it's going to be a totally right. different character. That's right. But it is, it is an interesting question. What would your fictional characters tell you if they could? Right, right, right. One of them definitely would not let me get away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You'd be hearing their voice in your head saying, change that sentence. I didn't say yeah. that. Right? Or I even just, that. why are you doing that? That's stupid. Don't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know it's stupid. Don't do the stupid thing. Do the smart thing. Oh, you're not even talking about the book. You're talking about informing your life. Yeah. 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 Because I mean, my book is done. So that's true. So yeah, that's it would be true. interesting while you were writing it too. But, but yeah, I have a feeling Dr. Martis would not let me get away with a whole lot. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there really are parts of us, I, I think. I mean, I've never taken a fiction writing class. And when I was in, um, when I was in high school, I went to see this play. My, my oldest brother and his wife would take me to the University of Connecticut. They had a great theater program. And I was, um, I, I might have been in my junior year. And, and, uh, and I, I wrote to the playwright. It was a new play. I can't remember the name of it or his name or anything. But I wrote a letter, you know, by hand. But mm -hmm. That's what we did back then. <laughs> yep. And I mailed it. And I said I wanted to be a writer, and I talked about his play and what I liked about it and what I didn't like about it. Not like he was a celebrity, but just mm -hmm. I think that the, the people at the theater had maybe said they wanted feedback because mm -hmm. it was new. It was a new production, and it wasn't like on its way to Broadway or anything. Right. And, and he wrote back a long letter, and he said, I'm glad you want to be a writer, but <laughs> my best suggestion for you is to don't study writing in college. Mm -hmm. Don't major in English. And that really was like oh, eye-opening to me. And he explained that it would it, some sometimes for people, I'm sure not for everybody, it, it kind of drains the creativity out of you. He didn't say it like that. I don't remember mm -hmm. and I don't have the letter, but it made an impression on me. I don't know if I ever really, I, I think I thought I might minor in creative writing or mm -hmm. English, but I stayed, uh, I majored in elementary education. And I always remember his advice. And I don't know, I don't know if it really would have done that or if I would have been a Pulitzer Prize winning authors, you know, <laughs> in my forties, if, if I had done that, because I know a lot of my favorite novelists have taken, gotten MFAs in creative writing and stuff. But um, anyway, I don't even know why I started saying that, but. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you do say that because, you know, there, there are occasional conversations and or controversies about that kind of thing online and you know I've gotten to the point where I just tell people to follow their curiosity you know because if what you want to write about is science a science degree is going to do you a lot more good than an English degree you can always learn how to simplify 
you know, difficult subjects right. later right. once you actually get the science. But for me now, without that science background to say, oh, hey, I want to be a science writer would be a really heavy lift because I don't have that background. Right. You know, right. or if you want to write about the theater, go get a theater degree. Right. You know, I, I mean, whatever it is that you're actually interested in that you want to write about is what you should study. That's right. And then figure out how to do the writing stuff later. You can always find a mentor or take more classes right. or whatever to fill in those gaps. But having that background is really the big thing. Right. And right. it'll be what you're really curious about anyway. Right. So you're likely to get right. more into it and do better with it because that's what you're interested yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I think his point was that life would teach me more about being a writer, mm -hmm. fiction, fiction, a writer of fiction. I never wanted to write screenplays or plays like right. he had written, but it was, a, it was about a story and some of it didn't make any sense to me and he explained some of it, but anyway, it was, it was interesting to get yeah, that I mean, as, back. As somebody who has an MFA, it was definitely a useful, worthwhile experience and I did it because I felt like I had done as much as I could do on my own and if I was going to learn how to do anything else, that was the next step. But, it, you know, that doesn't mean that that's the right choice for everybody. Right. Right. Especially yeah. if you're going to end up in a whole lot of debt afterwards. Yeah. I know, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which fortunately I didn't, I was very lucky, but you know, it would have been super, super easy right. to be sitting here with mountains of debt now because I had done it. So right. lots and lots of different ways to become a writer, lots that's of different right. paths and everything in your life is always the experience that you draw on no that's matter right. what. That's right. That's right. Anybody who wants to be a writer or probably lots of other things, if you feel like you haven't got the right education, don't worry about it. Put words on a page. See what happens. Go from there. You can always find somebody to teach you things. Right. And get feedback from other people yeah. who, like, who like the kind of book or story or whatever that you're writing. Because yes, because not everyone feedback. is your audience. Right. Yeah. And that's really key to not try and please everyone. Yeah, if right. your best friend loves to read horror novels and you're going to write a mystery, they might not be the first best person to give you feedback <laughs> about your mystery novel. That's right. That's right. Not not everyone is your audience. And it's up to you to figure out who is and whose feedback is worth listening right. to and whose isn't. Right. Who's your ideal reader? That's an exercise I found somewhere in my meanderings about um putting yourself out there as a writer on social media and finding yeah. people who want to read your book is, you know, it was kind of like a fictional character. Picture, mm -hmm. picture him or her in your mind. How old is she? What does she look like? Where does she live? What does she do in her spare time? How much money does she make? What does she do for a living? Like that kind of thing. That was a very interesting exercise. Because yeah. it's never going to be everybody. Right. It can't be. If yeah. you try and do that, like you said before about pleasing everybody, then you end up pleasing nobody. So Right. Right. And that's just criminal, honestly, to put that much right. effort into something. Right. It's kind of something that's just yeah. 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 Well, Anything this has else been really, really fun. <laughs> yes. I've enjoyed <laughs> this talk. Thank you, Nancy. Me too. That's this week's episode. Thanks so much to Anne-Marie Bennett and to you for joining me. Check out the links in the show notes at fycuriosity.com. And if you like the show, please do share it with a friend. Thanks so much. 
You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.